So, there's three books of the Bible that are considered wisdom literature. We have the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, and the book of Job. Proverbs is kind of black and white. There's wise people and there's fools. If you do good stuff, you'll be blessed. If you do bad stuff, you're going to get trouble. And that was the common view of the day. Ecclesiastes muddies the water a little bit. The writer Solomon is a little more nuanced. So he has stuff in Ecclesiastes like, man, it really stinks if you work your whole life, make a pile of money, have everything you ever wanted, but you live alone. And you die, and all your stuff goes to somebody else that didn't work for it, and they frittered away. And Ecclesiastes is just trying to get a grip on the meaning of life. And we come to the book of Job. Uh, the book of Job is kind of mysterious. Nobody knows who wrote it. Nobody knows what the setting was. None of the people in it are Israelites. So it's 42 chapters of this magnificent story that apparently the author didn't want us to get bogged down with who wrote it and why and all that junk. He just wants us to grasp and wrestle with the message of the book of Job. So as we approach Job's life and suffering, God says Job was a righteous man. And Job and all his friends lived with, the, with assumptions about life. I thought it would be a little quicker if I uh, drew some stuff before I showed it to you. So their view of life, and I would say tons of our view of life, and many Americans believe this is how life is on planet Earth. God is just. He rules by retribution. You reap what you sow. You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. Good equals blessing, bad equals punishment. Now, I, I think I've lived my life pretty much up till now thinking that's the way it is, and then it raises a lot of questions for me. So, the breakdown of the book is pretty easy. The intro is chapters 1 and 2. This is just giving us a little background to what's going on, and we'll talk about that in a minute. In chapters 3 through 37, three friends came to comfort Job in his suffering. For seven days they came and just sat there and didn't say anything, and I would say that was probably the best thing they did. Sat with Job in his suffering. But after that, Job, in chapter 3, says he wishes he was never born. And he goes through this thing that, why, did, why didn't you just let me be stillborn? And he actually was suicidal. He just wanted to die. His three friends could be silent no longer. So after that, the first friend steps up and he talks to Job about what he thinks is going on. 
Then Job responds to that guy. Second friend jumps up, and he has some comments. Job responds to him, and then the third friend jumps in. They do this three rounds. So when you're reading the book, this really gets cluttered. Man, there's just a lot of language in there, and we're going to look at that in a minute. And then chapters 38 through 41, Job gets his day in court. You'll understand that more fully in a minute. And then 42, it ends, and we're hanging there. So let's look at the background of the story first, just so you know what's going on. And I'm going to hit the highlights. We're not going to... It's 42 chapters. I can't read the whole thing to you. We'd be here till next week, and Todd will be ready to preach. So in the introduction to the story in chapters 1 and 2, I will read a couple verses. And... Um, it says there once was a man named Job, not Job, even though it's spelled the same way, who lived in the land of Uz. Wherever that was, it was far away from Jerusalem. He was a blameless, he was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. And then he's going to talk about all the possessions he had and it says, he was, in fact, the richest person in that entire area. He was righteous. He was blessed. He was so concerned. He had uh, adult children, and they would uh, get together regularly and have big celebrations. Made me think of your family, George, George, Miss George and Mr. Tammy. I don't know if you said that backwards up there. You said Mr. Gale and Miss Scott. Yeah, <laughs> but they have a big family, they do a lot of stuff together, and it's always really fun to be included in it. But after those things, Job was so righteous that he would go before God and actually offer sacrifices to God just in case anybody in that event did something wrong. He wanted to make sure it was covered. Then we leave Job and the earth behind and we're transported into the heavenlies. And here's God on his throne. He's having an elder meeting. There's all these angelic beings there before him and one of them is called the Satan. And all that word means Satan is adversary. That's not his name. That's what he does. He's an adversary. So God's having this meeting about how life's going on the planet, and this one guy, the adversary, raises his hand. God said, uh, what have you been up to? And he said, just traveling all over the earth, seeing what's going on. And, and God says, oh, really? Have you considered my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless. A man of complete integrity, he fears me and stays away from evil. How would you like God to describe you that way? Now, if God says that, that's a pretty powerful statement. So that leads me to believe that in his day, Job was doing the best he could do. And the adversary says, oh yeah, Job has really good reason to serve you. Look at him. He's stinking rich. He's got this wonderful family. Everything's gone his way. Why wouldn't he serve you? Just let me at him. 
Let me strip away some of that stuff, and then we'll see how he acts. And God says, all right, have at it. So you read the chapters, and these messengers come to Job. Hey, Job, <laughs> I hate to tell you this, but man, your whole farm just burnt down to the ground, and all your animals are dead. And messenger after messenger, your family, your kids have been killed, and basically everything was stripped from him. And man, his response puts me on my knees. The end of chapter 1, verse 20, Job stood up, tore his robe in grief. He shaved his head and fell to the ground to worship. To worship? And he said, I came from my mother, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. Whew. What a response. A bunch of you asked me how I was doing today with my shingles, and I said, man, I've been studying Job all week. I'm doing great. So the adversary comes back. He says, yeah, yeah, that was just stuff. Let me hurt him. Satan replied to the Lord, skin for skin. A man will give up everything he has to save his life. Survival is our strongest drive. But reach out and take away his health, and he will surely curse you to your face. All right. Do with him as you please, God says, but spare his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence and he struck Job with terrible boils from head to foot. Not just a little, on his side. Put him in pain from head to foot. It says Job scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes. He was in misery. And his wife comes up and says, Are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Why don't you just curse God and die? But Job replied, you talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of the Lord and never anything bad? So in all this, Job said nothing wrong. So we leave the intro, and I don't know about you, but I read that intro, <laughs> intro and I, I have one question. Why? Why would you do that, God? Why would you allow that to happen? And the only answer I have is for centuries, the people of God have been blessed in their suffering by the book of Job. So then we leave the intro, 
which is all written in just regular writing. They call it prose. And the next 3 through 37 are all what's called poetry. Hebrew poetry isn't rhyming sounds. It rhymes thoughts. So a lot of times you'll see the same phrase said one way and then said the exact same thing, only different words. That's Hebrew poetry. I could go teach a whole class on that, but I'm not. So, Job's second response to me is equally powerful and still trusting. But now the main body of the book, i got to erase all this because i got more to come. The main body of the book is Job and his buddies talking it over. And like I said, their first week there was their best because when they came around the corner and they saw Job boils from head to foot, probably scabbing over some oozing, he just looked terrible. And they were shocked at how he looked. And they just sat down in the ashes with him and didn't say a word for seven days. And I would say one takeaway for how the church can help people when they suffer is be present, but be quiet. You can pray, but don't think you're the God of the universe and you know what's going on. So, these three friends represent the best thinking of the world at the time. And like I said, God is just. God operates on the retribution system. Good brings blessing. Bad brings trouble. Now chapter 3 is all Job talking and all he talks about is basically, I just want to be dead. I don't want to be here anymore. Uh, basically, he's suicidal. So the first friend responds to Job's diatribe on example, let the day of my birth be erased and the night I was conceived. He wants to go all the way back to the beginning, so don't even let that happen. I don't even want to be a miscarriage. I don't even want to be here. So that, that was his mindset. And the first guy steps up, and his name is Eliphaz. And he rambles for two chapters, four and five. But the gist of his talk is in verse uh, chapter 4, 7 through 8, and he says this, Job, stop and think. Do the innocent die? Of course not. The innocent are blessed. When have the upright been destroyed? My experience shows that those who plant trouble and cultivate evil will harvest the same. And as they have this discussion, it starts off 
first round is a little gentle. I mean, but they are accusatory. They're saying, Job, you've had to have done something. And they get to a place of saying, well, if you didn't do something, maybe one of your kids did something, and God's punishing you for that. But they weren't capable of thinking outside of this box. So now they have a huge dilemma. Because now we have a man who is righteous, but suffering, and suffering tremendously. This messes up the whole worldview. So one of the other two points on this triangle then have to be wrong. And Job's friends assume that this is wrong. Job cannot be righteous because of all that he is suffering. But Job comes at it from another angle, and he says, I know I am righteous. So that means God is unjust. It's the only option he's got. You know what they say about assumptions. And the book of Job is all about assumptions. Wrong assumptions. So some of the things this guy says to him, <clears throat> consider it, but consider the joy of those corrected by God. Do not despise the discipline of the Almighty when you sin. He says, we have studied life and found all this to be true. Listen to my counsel and apply it to yourself. Job responds to his friend and says, if misery could be weighed and my trouble put on the scales, they would outweigh the sands of the sea. That's how bad he was suffering. I want, I just want God to kill me. But then Job makes this claim in chapter 6 and verse 10. At least I can take comfort in this. Despite the pain, I have not denied the words of the Holy One. And then he adds this comment. One should be kind to a fainting friend. Another lesson for the church. We should be kind to those who are suffering around us. Weep with those who weep. And he says, you accuse me without any fear of the Almighty. Stop assuming my guilt, for I have done no wrong. Do you think I am lying? Don't I know the difference between right and wrong? <clears throat> 720 says, if I have sinned, what have I done to you? You'll see in these arguments, these guys just grow stronger and stronger and stronger in accusing Job of sin. And Job grows stronger and stronger and stronger that I don't even want to talk to you guys. I want to talk to God. I want a hearing with him. And he's wrestling with God through his struggles. And in verse 
uh, 20 and 21 of chapter 7, he says, If I have sinned, what have I done to you? O watcher of all humanity, why make me your target? Am I a burden to you? Why not just forgive my sin and take away my guilt? For soon I'm going to lie down in the dust and die, and when you look for me, I'll be gone. So then another friend steps up and says, How long will you go on like this? You sound like a blustering wind. Does God twist justice? Does the Almighty twist what is right based on their triangle? Your children must have sinned against him. But look, God will not reject a person of integrity, nor will he lend a hand to the wicked. So their punishment was well-deserved. So they have these assumptions they just cannot break free from. Third friend talks in chapter 11. Shouldn't someone answer this torrent of words? Talking about Job. Is a person proved innocent just by talking? Should I remain silent while you babble on? When you mock God, shouldn't someone make you ashamed? You claim my beliefs are pure and I am clean in the sight of God. But listen, God is doubtless punishing you far less than you deserve. How's that for comfort? Man, Scott, I'm really sorry you got those shingles. They've been tearing you up, but you should have got worse than that. And that friend says, get rid of your sins, leave all iniquity behind you, then your face will brighten with innocence, you'll be strong and free of fear. Some of Job's comments along the way, I just put a few of them together. He says, if someone wanted to take God to court, would it be possible to answer him even once in a thousand times? For God is so wise and so mighty, who has ever challenged him successfully? And then Job says, even if I were right, I would have no defense. I could only plead for mercy if he was before God. And if I summoned him and he responded, I'm not sure he would listen to me. And Job says, God is not mortal like me, so I cannot argue with him or take him to trial. If only there were a mediator between us, someone who could bring us together. The mediator could make God stop beating me, and I would no longer live in terror of his punishment. Then I could speak to him without fear. But I cannot do that in my own strength. But as the arguments go, and it gets hotter and hotter, Job gets stronger and stronger. And he says in chapter 10 and verse 2, I will say to God, don't simply condemn me. Tell me the charges you're bringing against me. I want justice. Don't let me suffer and not tell me why. I want to know the charge against me. What is going on? And he says to God, although you know I'm not guilty, no one can res rescue me from your hands in 10.7. 12.2, he says, you people really know everything, don't you? Talking to his buddies. A little sarcasm. And when you die, wisdom's going to die with you. Even in all his misery, he has a pretty sharp mind. He 
He said, but as for me, 13.3, I would speak directly to the Almighty. I want to argue my case with God himself. That's pretty bold. So in 13, 22 and 24, he says to God, now summon me and I will answer. Or let me speak to you and you reply. Tell me what I have done wrong. Show me my rebellion and my sin. Why do you turn away from me? Why do you treat me as your enemy? 16, 2 and 3, he says, I heard all this before. Talking to the friends again. What miserable comforters you are. Won't you ever stop blowing hot air? What makes you keep on talking? Must have been preachers. Chapter 19, 5 and 6. You think you're better than I am. You're using humiliation as evidence of my sin. But it is God who has wronged me. Capturing me in his net. 21.4 My complaint is with God, not with people. I have good reason to be so impatient. 23. 3-7 If I only knew where to find God, I would go to his court, I would lay out my case and present my arguments, then I would listen to his reply and understand what he says to me, would he use his great power to argue with me? No. He would give me a fair hearing. Honest people can reason with him. Listen to this. So I would be forever acquitted by my judge. Job says if I could go to God's courtroom and argue my case and lay it out before him, he would agree with me. I'm right. Guy's got a little hoomph. So I wrote in my notes, I got to stop uh, talking. I thought this was going to take hours, but it's going pretty good. What is 1213 already? Holy cow. So, the bottom line of the story is as they go on and on and on, God keeps wanting to talk to God, or Job keeps wanting to talk to God. And his friends just keep trashing him. So, the problem with this whole story is faulty assumptions equal faulty outcomes. Job's saying, I'm innocent and suffering, so God is unjust. And his friends saying, God is just, so you must have sinned. And finally, a fourth guy comes into the show. Elihu was his name. And he's a little more nuanced than the first three guys. And he comes in and he says, God is just. Job is suffering. But maybe it's not because of his sin. Maybe it's a warning against future sin. But it's still in the same triangle thinking. Um, So I guess God's had enough. And it comes down to the showdown at the OK Corral. Have you all read the book of Job? That would help if you have a basic understanding of the story. So in chapter 38, the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. 
Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Job, put your big boy pants on. Brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you. And you're going to have to answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying lines? What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstones? Who kept the sea inside its boundaries? He goes on and on. Have you ever commanded the morning to appear? Job, do you control the solar system? Does the sun rise and set because you orchestrated it? Have you made daylight spread to the ends of the earth? Have you explored the springs from which the seas come? Have you explored the depths? Do you know where the gates of death are located? Do you realize the extent of the earth? Tell me about all you know. Where does the light come from and where does darkness go? Can you take each to its home? Do you know where or how they get there? But of course you know all this, God says, for you were born before it was all created. Now God's ragging on Job too. Question after question. It would be hard for any of us to answer. Can you shout to the clouds and make it rain? Can you make lightning appear and cause it to strike as you direct? Who gives intuition to the heart and instinct to the mind? Who is wise enough to count all the clouds? Who can tilt the water jars of heaven when the parched ground is dry and the soil is hardened into clods? He goes on for two chapters of this, and then he goes into the whole animal realm and the sea realm and all of creation and asking Job all these questions. And the Lord said in chapter 40 to Job, do you still want to argue with the Almighty? You're God's critic, but do you have any answers for me, Job? Then Job replied to the Lord, I am nothing. Verse, chapter 40, verse 4. How could I ever find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand. I have said too much already. I have nothing more to say. He had his day in court. He surrenders. I'm done. I quit. You got me. I'm pinned. I'm tapping out. But the Lord answered Job again and said, Brace yourself like a man because I got a few more questions for you and you must answer them. Will you discredit my justice and condemn me just to prove you are right? Man, that's a good question. When stuff goes wrong, will you condemn God to show that you're right?
Are you as strong as God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? All right, put on your glory and splendor, your honor and majesty. Give vent to your anger. Let it overflow against the proud. Oh, and then he brings in these two creatures, Behemoth and Levithan. And basically, the way he describes these creatures is no man can tame them. They're wild and dangerous. And that's really an important thing. So I've got to get to the end. Job speaks again, and he says, I only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. So anybody that reads the book of Job, especially the first chapters, and say, is that what God's like? That's not fair at all. Know this. If you got your day in court like Job did and stood before him, you would have the same response. In fact, the Bible says, in the end, when we stand before him, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Nobody in the Bible ever got exposed to the presence of God that didn't fall down as a dead man. We don't know who we're messing with. Our God is too small, the one in our head. The conclusion of the matter, God speaks in chapter 42. And he says to Job's friends, my servant Job will pray for you. And I will accept his prayer on your behalf, and I will not treat you as you deserve, for you have not spoken accurately about me as my servant Job has. So even though Job was on an emotional roller coaster through those chapters and said all kinds of stuff about God, for the most part, his heart straight stayed true, and he continued to run to God with his struggle And Job is commended by God for going through all he went through and staying as true as he did. So the Lord blessed Job in the second half of his life even more than in the beginning. So, the conclusion. What we learn from the book of Job is this view of life is incorrect. And I've taught you guys last week and many times the Genesis 1 world, creation world, is different than our current world and is very similar, if not the same, to our eternal world. So, what was the original world like? God said it was good. And it was perfect, as somebody said. Just bring this with me, save a trip. 
The world was ordered. And it was tamed. Adam and Eve and all the animals lived in harmony together. There weren't lions like threatening to eat them or anything. There were no tsunamis, no earthquakes, no national disaster, natural disasters. And his creation was beautiful. And safe. That was this world and this world. Kind of describes both. But this world that we live in is not the best world. It's the best way to the best world. So in this world, first family, a righteous man got murdered. Cain killed Abel. All kinds of disastrous things. So the world we live in now is good, but not perfect. It is ordered, but wild. It is beautiful, but dangerous. Here's the way the world is now. Here's a great biblical worldview for you to remember. God is not operating by his justice now in this present world. There is a basic principle, we reap what we sow, but that is not always the case. It's not the major way that God's operating. God is operating now with wisdom. And this is what Job teaches. The way God operates this world now is he has one purpose. I am not willing that any would perish, but all would come to repentance. That's his purpose. And so he sent Jesus Christ as the central thing in all of human history to come here and live and die to bear our sin on the cross so we could be forgiven and make it to this. God's desire is to be with his people. It's all about relationships. So in the Garden of Eden, God came every day and fellowshiped with Adam and Eve. In the Old Testament, tabernacle was a place where God's presence came down so he could be with his people. And then he made a personal visit by sending Jesus Christ who came down and had a relationship with his people and calling people to repentance and trust. And in eternity, one of the first scenes is God comes and he wipes his tears from our eyes and he says we are his sons and daughters and we are going to be with him forever. And that's what it's all about, the relationship. All he's ever longed for is us to love Know and trust him. 
So the way this world operates now is by God's wisdom and his grace and his softer side, if you want to put it that way. If he really operated by the system that Job and his buddies believed in, the retribution system, guess what? There wouldn't be any people here to work with. We'd all be dead. First time that two-year-old said no to his parents, boom, he's gone. First time your parents said to you, Johnny, did you take that candy out of the dish? And you go, no. Boom, he's gone. The wages of sin is death. We would all be dead. There wouldn't be anybody here. So during this time, in his grace and his wisdom, God is patiently wooing us and calling us and suffering sometimes as his megaphone saying, hey, hey, hey. Will you stop the rat race and trust me? Will you come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden? I'll give you rest for your souls. So what happens in a world where God's wisdom and grace is operating? Sometimes bad people get good things. The rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. God didn't kill you when you sinned. Kind of letting you run your course, hoping that sooner or later you're going to hit that brick wall that turns you to him. And sometimes good people suffer. Having that worldview changes everything. Knowing we're living in this sifting time changes everything. There's only one thing that matters. Two things. Love God and love people. Get as many people in that lifeboat as you can because it won't be long. We're going to the, the best world. We're not in it now. So how do we suffer as Christians? I'm going to tell you this. How you suffer is more important than why you suffer. You may never know why. Even though I gave you nine reasons last week, you could wrestle with all them and say, eh, none of them really seem to fit me. I don't, I don't know why I'm suffering like I am. But why you're suffering like you are is because we're living on a fallen world and stuff happens and everybody eventually is going to die. How do we suffer? The current world is not governed by the justice principle, but the wisdom principle. Give God some slack. think he knows a little more than we do. And according to God in the book of Job, it's all right to question him, argue with him, fuss with him, but in the end, trust him. And when we go to help other people that are suffering, help those who are suffering without assumptions of why they're suffering. God has a universal view. He knows everything about his creation, everything about us. 
humans have a tiny understanding of life form the universe. I was thinking, we're going to challenge the almighty God of the universe who knows everything. And I was thinking this morning in the shower, getting ready for this, most of you don't even understand the home you live in. Do you understand your HVAC system? How can a heat pump produce cold and hot? How does a refrigeration cycle work? Most of you have a smartphone in your pocket. Do you have any idea how in the heck that works? Could you make one? Do you comprehend the Internet? Do you understand your human body? How do your eyes work? How can I look at Dwayne smiling at me right up close and then look all the way back and see TD and focus instantly? How does that work? How can I be up here making noises that are going from my tongue out into the room, all these sound waves, and somehow these two things on the side of your head capture those sound waves, send them to your brain, interpret them so you understand immediately while I'm speaking what words I'm saying. You don't understand that. Why would you question the Almighty? The message of Job is come hell or high water. I'm here to reach as many people as I can reach to the glory of God. I will suffer. I will trust his wisdom. And his justice will kick in before we enter into there at the end of this life. He is a just God. And everybody will get their due payment for whatever they did, good or bad. It's not going to happen in this life. That's not his purpose now. So we're to trust his character and his wisdom when we don't understand something. Romans 8 says, Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For in this life, all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse because of sin. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. I think it was about Tuesday or Wednesday, I had a whole sermon on how to suffer, typed up and done. And I read it to Gail, and her eyes glazed over. She said, that's not it. <laughs> Through this all, I've been thinking, what is the church meant to be? Has nothing to do with all the hoopla. Has everything to do with fellow sufferers on a mission. 
we come together and rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those that weep, comfort those who need comforted, sit beside our suffering friends, constantly reminding them there's a better world and we're ready for it and we're heading for it and we're ready for it. But in the meantime, trust God. Press on. Reach as many as you can. Because the alternative to the best world is nothing to be desired. The church is meant to be a safe place of refuge where we love and are loved. Where we know and are known. Where we serve and are served. Where we accept each other and we're accepted. The worst reprobate in this worldview, ought to be able to come through those back doors of the church and receive as much love as a good-looking couple like Gail and me got when we got here. How do we do that? On my drive here this morning, I've wondered multiple times, Lord, why did you lead us to Kingsway? And I'm thrilled with the way you guys have accepted me, and Pastor Todd doesn't seem threatened by me. He gives me opportunities. He's listened to me. He almost has incorporated everything I've suggested to him. Why have you brought us here? We just celebrated our 50th anniversary. We're 69 years old. I know that sounds young to a few of you. But it isn't. I read the obituaries every day. There's people my age dying all the time. And I have thought, you know what, Lord? There is no place I would rather leave my wife when I die than at Kingsway. Because she will be loved and looked after and have a family here who cares. And if she goes first, I hope some of you ladies bring me meals. <laughs> and I know you will love me and look after me. Tonight we're having a sharing night. The church is meant to be that place where we can unload everything. Where we can be totally vulnerable and open and nobody's going to make assumptions about us. They're just going to love on us. I have an opportunity to come out tonight in a special service and share some of your life with us. The whole purpose for K groups, our small groups that meet in homes to study the Bible, is for you to connect with each other at a deeper level and to care for each other and love each other. Our men's group is just to be a place, a safe place for men to come and share the struggles of life together that we don't know how to do by ourselves. The biggest wrestling match this week was what in the heck do I do with the invitation? This is kind of a, it's almost too big for an invitation. But my thought is, Maybe some of you are suffering and you've come in here angry at God. Wondering what in the heck he's doing. Why he's allowing you to go through what you're going through. 
Maybe you need to pretend you're Job and you got an opportunity to stand before God and get an answer. You might want to come and repent and say, I'm, I'm sorry, Lord. In my suffering, I will trust you. I will trust your divine wisdom. Some of you, you might want to come and pray and just say, Lord, I've had that first triangle worldview and I've been mad because I've seen some neighbor, it's a heathen, and he's got a Bentley in his driveway and this big house and they seem to be going good. It's like they don't have any struggles at all. Lord, that isn't fair. What are you doing? So we might have to just repent of having a wrong view of the world. And say, Lord, I will recognize that right now all kinds of junk's going on that's not in line with who you are, but it's for your divine purpose. So I will trust you, and I will bow my knee before you in your wisdom, let you run the universe, and I'll just work on loving the people you put in my life. So I don't know. You may or may not respond, but I, I believe... We needed to hear this today, and I thank God for letting me deliver it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the book of Job. Man, it grieves me to watch him suffer, and I think it's unfair. But with Job, I bow my knee before you, and I pray that no matter what happens bad in my life, it will never shake me from the foundational core belief that you are God and you are wise and you are trustworthy and you are doing something on purpose even though I may not understand it. And I rejoice, Lord, that one day most of us will be together in that best world with you as our Father and we as your sons and daughters loving you and living the good life. Thank you, Lord, in Christ's name.